0: What makes us take up causes others think are impossible? What draws others to the cause, bonds us together, and gives us an inexhaustible energy and unwavering belief that we'll succeed? I'll draw on my own experiences and talk to fellow champions about the successes, setbacks, and team dynamics that move causes forward. I'm Marvin Stockwell, and welcome to Champions of the Lost Causes. On today's show... Aaron Barnes and Dawn Arrington of IOBI, a crowdfunding site that helps people make positive changes in their communities. We'll talk to Aaron about IOBI's early days of finding their niche, helping smaller neighborhood level actors make change. We'll talk to Dawn about her evolution from project leader in Cleveland to IOBI's place-based strategies manager with responsibilities for the entire country. We'll also talk about lessons IOBI learned in the pandemic about equity and what's next in the coming years. All that and more on Champions of the Lost Causes. If you champion a cause, aspire to, or just root for the people who do, I hope you'll check out the free ebook I just published called The Dynamic Duo, Two Indispensable Leaders for Championing Any Cause. It's available at championsofthelostcauses.org. It's a first fruits prequel of sorts. I started writing the full-length Champions of the Lost Causes in 2018. It's about why people champion causes, what sustains them, and what helps them succeed. With any luck, 2022 will be the year my editor and I wrap our arms around the hundred and forty thousand plus words I've written and emerge with a book worth reading. Two things have informed my work. First, my years of championing the cause of saving and reopening the Mid South Coliseum. I first got curious about where my own motivations stem from. Second, the experiences of my Champions of the Lost Causes podcast guests. The more I talk to fellow Champions about the work of their causes, I see the common denominator of our desire to change the world. I see signature signposts of a Champion's journey, tactics, transits, setbacks, and successes that all come from trial and error and a willingness to play the long game. I feel a kinship to these people. In telling their stories and in telling my own, I hope to demonstrate that we all have the potential to change the world within our spheres of influence. The lost causes aren't lost, it turns out, because we found them. With my free ebook, podcast, and full-length book to come, I want to help us find each other, for mutual encouragement, and to foster a dialogue about what helps move causes forward. I'll share what I've learned through my own work, but I'm also here to learn from others. Now, I hope you'll like Dynamic Duo and let me know what you think. Many thanks. So, Aaron Barnes, Dawn Arrington, thank you so much for being on Champions of the Lost Causes. Thanks,
1: thanks for, for having, having us. Having
0: yeah, us. sure. Um, Aaron, if we could hear at the outset, uh, you being co founder of IOB, if you could back up and just say what was that founding impetus to to form IOBI? There were probably other crowdfunding sites out there. Uh, what? Why is IOB different? And and what did you did you look out? You and your co founders see and say, "Here's the 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 need. Here's the our niche. And by golly, we got to go do it." And and it wasn't in any theory anymore. You weren't just talking over beers anymore. You're like, "By golly, we're doing it." That's
1: a great. How'd question. How'd that happen? <laughs> so, um. Brandon Whitney, Cassie Flynn, and I, uh, we all met when we were in graduate school together. And after grad school, we were talking about different issues inside the environmental field, um, trying to figure out ways of getting people to be more engaged around climate change specifically. Um, And I think all of us had sort of had this experience that uh, local residents are often overlooked in decision-making. And we wanted to try to figure out a way to get people to be more deeply engaged in issues. At the time, though, it was 2007. And when people talked about climate change, they talked about polar bears and melting icebergs. It's just a, it's a really long lift to get from where I live, work, pray, and play every day to an iceberg. So we we're trying to get people to be closer to the issue, um, like literally and figuratively. And um, we didn't originally think about IOB as a crowdfunding platform because the word crowdfunding hadn't been invented yet, and there actually weren't any in existence. So it was 2007. Facebook has just been invented. we I don't think I had even had an iPhone yet. And so there was it was really early days of social media. And we were thinking about ways that people sort of express their identity on the internet and express what they believe in uh, through different means, whether that's like, um, badges and competitions and leaderboards, or by giving. And we knew about two early models of crowdfunding that came out of the nonprofit sector Donors Choose and Kiva. And because the word crowdfunding hadn't been invented yet, they referred to this as um, online micro philanthropy or online micro lending. And Kiva, we had all been very familiar with, it was incredibly successful in like an economic development. Um, context, and Donors' Choose was wildly successful as well. And we were really, really lucky to have um, Charles Best, the founder of Donors' Choose, uh, agreed to sit down and share with us a little bit about how Donors Choose uh, operates, how um, how they run their business, and what the opportunities were. And so IOB actually started off, we called ourselves an online micro philanthropic platform because we thought that'd be really easy to say, super easy to understand. Um, and uh, with No the surprise idea,
0: that the word crowdfunding won out.
1: <laughs> yeah, you right.
0: Know, humanity <laughs> craves simplicity, but yeah, no, but go ahead. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. And,
1: and so the idea was really that we wanted to create a platform online where people could uh, lead projects in their neighborhood, invite their neighbors to participate in them by either volunteering, by donating, um, by just like being a supporter. Um, and through that process, demonstrate to others that it's actually not that hard to make change in your neighborhood. And that was the really the core idea.
0: Yeah. Y- you know, um that's it, so funny that the of course there was a time and it wasn't even that long ago that uh, crowdfunding wasn't even a term, but 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 it's but explaining what its kind of predecessors were, you you can kind of understand how that blew up and w- resourced by the internet. But that's really fascinating to you know s- s- social media in its infancy. It's it it feels like it's been around forever, but of course it hasn't. My own experience in nonprofit, you know, I remember trying to explain to our executive director how this is something we really needed to spend actual time doing. You know, it's like isn't this just this crazy silly thing that college. Kids are doing, and it's like, and now of course it's a, it's an absolute discipline. Uh, <laughs> it, all all nonprofits have it as as a staff position now. Now um, well, that's fascinating. So the thing that appealed to me, so um, as as co-founder of the Coliseum Coalition, we um, what appealed to me about IOB is because by the time we decided we wanted uh, to crowdfund it was 2015 and so there were other crowdfunding uh, options out there um but iobi uh pr- probably in part because there was a there was a, pr- a presence in in memphis uh it, it just uh, it kind of floated to the top and then when you look at it it's a crowdfunding platform but it's not just like other crowdfunding platforms where pretty much they fund anything just like you know they want their their cut it's really uh it it's cut out to uh to be about uh, project-based works on a, on a neighborhood level. And that's what the Coliseum Coalition was setting out to do. We didn't really understand it at the time. And that's really uh, at, at, the, kind of, at its basic, it, it, you all resourced us. IOB was an incredibly helpful fundraising mechanism when we were trying to build the plane and the runway all at the same time, because we had a deadline. There was a plan in place to demolish the Mid-South Coliseum, and we didn't want to see that happen. And so we were trying to find a way to um, break through and convince everybody. Like the criticism about us at the time was that uh, we were "quote unquote" um, just a just a, a dozen or so middle aged white guys pining for Van Halen in their prime. Um, and of course, it was not that. Uh, and the way we proved that we were not that—that that it was a diverse mass movement—was by throwing Roundhouse Revival, where we had. 4,500 people that, that looked exactly like the composition of Memphis, uh, which is a majority black city. So we had just tons of people of all stripes come out for a day of music, wrestling, and basketball, uh, outside the Coliseum because the the Coliseum is is still to this day closed. Um, but I don't know what we would have done. We formed in January of 2015, and by May of 2015, we were putting on an event that we had to spend $20,000 to produce with wrestling rings and paying the bands and paying the wrestlers. Uh, you know, So how else were we going to like put our hands on that money? And so like the $7,200 that Iobi helped us raise through texting everybody, Facebook messaging a bunch of people, and then of course, all the other stuff like leafleting, knocking on doors, all that kind of grassroots DIY stuff. It was it was the it was the absolutely necessary plug-in at a time where we were barely aware of what we even were. And so I just thought because like if you think of nonprofit in the traditional sense, you think about, oh, okay, well, you know, grant cycles and like it's much more you have to play this long game, but like Iobis, like, you're doing something immediate. We're <laughs> we're here to help. So um any, if anything, if I if I start this interview with with uh, with anything, I want it to be a note of of gratitude because my own cause uh, wouldn't be where it is um, now, seven years in, and we've got other mechanisms built in. But in those early days where we didn't have any support, uh, it's hard to imagine we would have would have really landed on the front page of our daily newspaper a, a, as a diverse mass movement where we couldn't be ignored anymore if we hadn't had that funding power. So. Anyway, I, I just, I'm a big fan of, of what you all uh, uh, do. That said. Um, well, we're, we're a yeah. big
1: fan because it's the, uh, it's the opportunity for us to make sure that wrestling is a part of the IOB typology of projects that we've been able to support. <laughs> First and so far, the only wrestling project. Oh
0: gosh. <laughs> you know, the wrestling community is actually quite generous. So like, I think it's only a matter of time for the wrestling community uh, shows up again.
2: Um, we'll say professional wrestling. Let's 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 distinguish it because we have had like, you know, youth groups. Right. Oh,
0: that's um, that true. Are,
2: like wrestling clubs and weightlifting clubs. And so there is,
1: yeah, you know, wrestling. I think about
2: like, like wrestling, right? Like Olympic wrestling. wrestling versus wrestling, Um, <laughs> which I'm a fan right. of both, honestly. Um, <laughs> oh, sure. Well, in Jerry Memphis. The King Lawler is one of my favorites oh, and he's a yes. Browns fan. So there's a tie there.
0: Jerry, the King Lawler. Yeah. Jerry's still wrestling when, when he and, uh, um, um, superstar Bill Dundee took on those Cretans, the Coliseum crushers, um, Jerry was 64 and, um, uh, and, uh, and Bill Dundee was 72. So, I mean, part of the beauty of, of of wrestling is that, like you know, it's it's performance art. So you can still suspend disbelief and think that a sixty four year old man and a seventy two year old man can whoop these other two young, huge dudes. Um, but whoop them they did, and sent them packing, and it sent the right message. But yeah, no. And what's funny is here here in Memphis, wrestling, professional wrestling is is still to this day, I mean, still a really uh, strong wrestling market so wrestling goes on all over town and if anything one of our kind of like key ally groups is the professional wrestling community uh which wrestles at about like 15 different places across town and they want their 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 temple reopened so to speak uh not that, that it's all about wrestling there's all sorts of other utility in the building but suffice it to say uh they're a strong ally so but yes wrestling wrestling and wrestling it's it's, it's kind of the same but it's kind of not um so so I appreciate the kind of like backing up to tell us just that that genesis point because oftentimes an idea evolves as you know our first Id- your first kind of framing of the idea doesn't necessarily end up being even what you are at your founding um but could you talk a little bit about um how okay so from those those early days um uh, if you could talk about just a bit about how it evolved from the earliest of early days with the with the the skeleton crew uh into what it's become both in terms of staff size uh and then maybe staff responsibilities what cities were areas of focus in the early days and and how how it's grown to be of a more national thing with leaders from from all over
1: sure i mean i think that iobi's Uh, core approach to working is centered around listening to feedback from what the community needs. And so I think um, we've adapted and made little course corrections and little iterations over many years, and there's a few really big ones. I think, as I mentioned, the early focus of IOB was on getting people to be more deeply engaged on climate change. And I think after IOB started off as just a New York City pilot, and um, after Superstorm Sandy, we observed some things about how communities responded to that um, climate crisis. Um, And what we saw was Mm -hmm. that the people who were best able to respond weren't necessarily the ones who were like active environmentalists or had had centered their lives around it. It was the communities who were already organized. They were the ones who already knew their neighbors, already had their neighbor's phone numbers and, and knew who to reach out to. And so it was a really important learning for us to see that the communities that were best able to respond to any type of disaster, whether it's a climate disaster or something else, were the the ones who were already well organized. And so, right after Superstorm Sandy, my co-founders and I decided that we would shift the focus of being so restricted on just environmental projects and expand it to neighborhood projects of any kind, because the the purpose of all of this was to make sure that, like people had those strong ties and the ability to self-organize and self-govern through whatever needed to happen. I think that was a really big shift for us, and, um, you know, Marvin, when you were talking about your role um working with the Coliseum coalition, it's not really the same thing as 501c3 nonprofit work. And I know Dawn can talk about this too from her perspective. I really believe that people are very powerful when they step outside of their institutions. You know, we all have institutions that we're a part of our kids' schools, the churches that we belong to, the places where we work. And a lot of those are mission driven. But I think real power comes when we like step outside on that edge of, you know, our house and our sidewalk and our communities and we kind of bridge with other people that we love and want to work with to make real change. And so I think a lot of IUB's focus has been on these like key upstart projects, these like uprisings, these grassroots movements, these like hyper responsive changes to real community needs rather than. You know, a nonprofit structure is more like okay, here's our five-year strategic plan, and here's boom, right. boom, boom, how we're <laughs> going to do it. Um, and so, I think IUB, knowing that its position was supposed to be responsive and serving of these grassroots upstart groups, we've been able to be adaptive to what the community needs most. We always say we meet people where we're where they're at, um, and that's like figurative and liter- literary. But um, the I think the big sh- the first big shift was um opening the aperture of our work from just environmental projects to right. to any neighborhood project. I think another big moment for us was when we decided to expand nationally outside of just New York. Um we we didn't really know what we were doing but I community groups from across the country were asking, can we use your platform to do this? Crowdfunding was in its early stages and people mm-hmm. sort of saw us as a specific kind of crowdfunding platform that they wanted to be a part of. Um, and then, but we really felt like that place-based work was really critical that we did in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so you saw us have other place-based offices in Miami first and Memphis and Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh, now Cincinnati as well. Um, and so I think like, that place-based work has become like a real refined part of our model um, so that we can be in, in place um, and in community with the people that we're serving. Um, and then, you know, this is sort of like the the fast, the fast version of IUB's last 14 years, but I think like another big moment for us was in the last two years during the pandemic um, when right. community groups really needed a platform to be hyper-responsive to Urgent needs, and we did a lot of adapting to the needs of mutual aid groups that were working to feed their neighbors, provide PPE, um, get people what they needed during a crisis. And so we adapted the way that we work to make sure that people could get funds faster, more easily, um, inside the context of a pandemic where people couldn't meet in person. Um, right. But all of that, I think, has just been it's it's been about like listening to what the community needs and being responsive.
0: Right. Um, I want to come back to the to the pandemic, uh, but first, I I think this is a good opportunity to to bring Dawn into the conversation because uh, Dawn, you were the Cleveland action strategist, and and I and and you founded a thing called I believe it's called Porch Fest, right? Is that no, right? No, I,
2: I didn't find it. I, didn't, didn't I wasn't a founder. I wasn't okay. a founder, but I am the president and um uh, a board member of it, which is. <laughs> I we, we yeah we do a lot yeah. um, and so and that's a a, a, a neighbor led initiative right mm-hmm. um, and, and so yeah but uh, I actually used IOB initially um, before I started working for IOB um, for a project that I was doing called Comics at the Corner. Um, which, well, tell me like, about that. So Comics at the Corner. Um, I live in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and Cleveland is the county seat of Cuyahoga County, uh-huh. and, um, <clears throat> Cuyahoga County has some pretty abysmal, um, literacy numbers, um, and then when you drill that down to the city of Cleveland and then you do it by neighborhood, the neighborhood that I live adjacent to, and that's the neighborhood that I grew up in, um. <clears throat> It's predominantly African-American, and the adult illiteracy rate, actually, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, the adult illiteracy rate in that community is nearly 90%. -hmm. Like, I I usually pause at that moment because I really want that to sink in. 90% of the people who look like me cannot read above a second grade reading level. Full stop, that's atrocious. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's terrible. A right. And so we know who it affects. We know how it affects them. Um, but that's a that's a really big issue. Um you know, and there, and there are programs that, you know, out there like GD attainment and re, adult literacy programs, um, and I thought of it more as like a community literacy issue or a community access issue. Um, I'm a parent myself. Uh, myself and my husband are very well educated, multiple degrees in this house. He's an educator himself, and third grade math nearly took us out twice. Because um, I have two kids, so we had to go through third grade math twice. Um, and so, if, if I'm mm-hmm. struggling, um, if I'm struggling with uh, with that, then uh, <laughs> yeah, I could. Could you imagine somebody who can't read above a second grade reading level trying to help their kids with third grade math and logic puzzles and things of that sort? Um, so you know, it, it became one of those things where. Um, I wanted to do something, but I also didn't want to, um, like that, I'm not a, you know, I'm not gonna start a whole new organization. And I wanna draw back to that point that Erin made earlier about like, you know, this platform, what's wonderful about this platform is that it's not, um, you don't have to be a nonprofit. In Cuyahoga County alone, there's like one nonprofit for every 200 residents. That's a really heavy saturation level, right? So I have zero intention of like ever starting a nonprofit to, you know, deal with a literacy issue. So, um, you know, to backtrack the comments at the corner. Um, I wanted to do something, but I didn't want to start an organization. Um, I wasn't necessarily focused on like jobs attainment. I feel that people, um, no matter where they are in life, deserve entertainment and relaxation. And to be able to just read for pleasure that informs the other parts of your life. So Comics at the Corner just seeks to put comic books that have um, uh, culturally relevant characters in the forefront. So basically black and brown characters um, in the hands of the people that I love the most, my neighbors. Um, And so I fundraised twice with IOB to literally just purchase comic books and hand them out to anybody I'm the crazy comic lady in my neighborhood now I love Um, that and I just hand out comics and they're you know and it's Uh, I'm not drawing them. I'm not, right, I can't draw a stick figure properly. They're always (laughs) ill-proportioned. So, you know, these are like familiar characters like Black Panther to some lesser known characters like Icon or Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. But it's to just put these characters in the hands of people who would be interested in them. My feeling is, is most of the time you can't... um, you can't encourage somebody to read if you don't put something in their hands that they're going to want to read. And even if you can't read the words, you can follow the visual cue. So there's other ways to be able to do storytelling. And I think comics is like this universal thing. Um, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you go into a shop and... Um, There are people having, you know, live conversations in a barbershop or a beauty salon or a corner store. And then you introduce these characters that either they know about or they didn't know about and their faces light up. These are like grown men, right. Who have, you know, life challenges and you put a comic in front of them and they're just like, yo, tell me more. Um, So that's, and Iob was the reason that like, I was able to do it. So, you know, we had, um, we had a, a, a situation where our truck was broken into on a family vacation, and we got the car home and took it to the, to the mechanic at the end of our street, and when my husband went to go pick up the, the truck, he said the guy who fixed our car, who was a very knowledgeable man and very professional, was writing the receipt, and he said, I will write the word window, but I don't know how to spell it. That hit me like to a level of tears. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was like, I've got to do something, but I don't know what to do, <laughs> right? You talked about that earlier. Like a yeah. lot of times people just don't necessarily know what they want to do. They know they want to do something. Um, and so then we, you know, fast forward, we went to go see Black Panther in the movie theater and there was just so many people who were proud and happy. And then I, um, there's a portion in the movie where they're speaking um, a South African language. Mm -hmm. And there's subtitles. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, there's a portion of of the audience that possibly cannot actually read the subtitles, thus taking their enjoyment of this movie down. They're not full participants in just something that should give them pride.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: What can we do about it? Okay.
0: And Black (laughs) Panther is a comic book character. So that's maybe the next logical step.
2: You know, yeah. That's a
0: really I I oh I so appreciate you telling me that backstory because um that that's that's what Iob is so it it, it enables that If it, it where do you go after that Genesis point like the the kind of like uh, the the you know what's the old Christopher saying light one candle instead of cursing the darkness and I feel like light imagery and lighting a candle is is a good image because it's like that candle of concern was lit within your heart at first. And you're like, there was a burning desire to do something, something. What is it? I keep running into these things. And then all of a sudden you, the, you reach that Eureka moment where your, your cause kind of somewhat drafts you and like takes a hold of you. And you're like, then it becomes mm-hmm. a, an obsession. You like, we must do it. Right. Yeah. The, other, the other observation I, ha- I had on hearing that's that incredible story is just how kind of like with wrestling. It's like, you don't it like, oh, you know, changing our society, reforming society. It's you immediately think of like, well, programs like Aaron was rattling off, you know, like G or, or that you rattled off, Don, and you know, GED programs, which of course you nod and you go, yeah, that's, that's important to have those programs. But it's like, there's still gaps. There's still additional opportunities to do something that's related, uh, that's still, uh, kind of born out of our kind of like unique, um, observations, uh, our unique gifts, uh, and and that 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 desire was just sitting there in in you, Don. And you're like you're observing these things. How can I make a difference? And you're already making a difference in the world with all these other spheres of your life, being a mom and a, and and a, and a wife and a and a community member, etc. But like there was that extra thing you had to do, and that's that's where Iobi is such a great partner because it becomes the automatic, really easy fueling mechanism for those. Those kind of grace notes that fill in all of the more uh, official um, efforts—that incredibly important. We we need nonprofits that have grant review boards and and all this like officialdom. Uh, but I think IOB helps that um, that early stage entrepreneurial, social entrepreneurial at its at its smallest uh, elemental level and, and and empowers it. So that's that's incredibly exciting to know that that was. That was essentially your first ioby experience that made you a fan because you saw how it enabled you to do something for your community. That's incredible. Absolutely,
2: and in I comics, tell that story. Right? Yeah, and comics, comic like books, my whole family. Who would have thought? Right? Right. Well, my whole <laughs> yeah. family. We we love comics. We love comic book characters. Like Disney Plus day was very happy for us. It was a very happy day, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, the thing that I try to tell people all the time is is that you don't have to like. I try to sort of demystify all of this for people. Like I serve, like you mentioned, I serve on the board for Large Mirror Porch Fest, but I also serve on three other boards too. Um, So like that's a lot of work and that's very formal and a lot of people don't have board experience. And so like you don't have to do all of that, right? You can simply just want to see your neighbors have a good quality of life. For me, um, it comes down to literacy. For someone else, it could be, you know, just wanting to see their kids get to school safely and making sure that like that they have safe walking paths or more crossing guards or something beautiful to see when they're walking to school. For somebody else, it could be uh access to to fresh foods, right? Um yeah. Again, my, you know, we could, we could talk, you know, wax poetic and big words all day long, white paper to death, all of the, the social and mm-hmm. uh, health issues that are correlated to me, in my opinion, to illiteracy, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't read above a second grade reading level, you probably aren't... Um, Necessarily working in uh, a, a life sustaining job. If you are struggling to read and you live in a particular neighborhood like I do, where there are uh, chronic illnesses such as diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, right, and obesity, let's let's tick them off, right? Yeah. But you can't read bus schedules you're having issues reading your medication bottles and how those things interact with each other. You probably don't even know what types of questions to ask your healthcare provider because you don't have access to good healthcare because they're not in our neighborhoods. So all of these things yeah. like are correlated and those problems are huge and big. And so for me, IOB and the coaching that I got, that's the other part, right? So Right. We have, you know, this wonderful staff of coaches that are teaching people how to um, tell their story and how to get the money, <laughs> like yeah. how to like organize within your own community. Because at the end of the day, um, money talks and
0: and things cost money.
2: And things cost money, but there's this, there's this relationship that you're building with people. So like, we're not shying away from asking people for money. And what we do know is that people who have less proportionately give more. So when you're talking to, you know, Miss so-and-so or Mr., you know, Mr. John down the street who that you see every day and you talk to him and you're building a relationship with him and you're in community with him and he gives you $5 out of his fixed income. Yeah, that is true. Giving it, it it's gonna hurt him way more than it's gonna hurt you know a corporate gift. Not that we don't mm-hmm. want them, we absolutely want them. We want all of your money uh, <laughs> to go to all of our projects. Yeah. But there there's something to there's something to be said about being in relationship with your community and demystifying who can give and demystifying who's important and who can be a leader and who can take charge. And so like, I'm personally not a big fan of like creating a whole nonprofit, like comments at the corner is just a thing that I do. It is not a nonprofit. I don't have a board. Um, If I can't do something or, you know, somebody who volunteers with me can't do something then we can't do it. And so there's this um, level of equity In that as well versus like forcing people to create a formal structure um and you know having to go after dollars um that like people who are probably better resourced um and have been doing this for such a long time and know all of the ins and outs they're going to be way more successful and then that you know can cause people to feel um disenfranchised dismayed and unmotivated and i'm yeah. here to like motivate people to make sure that they're doing what they want to do in their communities that's what yeah. we're all about
0: it, it it can kind of be daunting when you think about you know all those uh, interwoven uh, societal problems what they call the social determinants of health uh but also from from the doing something about it perspective, uh, I think what you've described, Don, uh, maybe described a different way, is really just there's plenty of work to do, and not all of it rises to the level of you needing to form a big, multifaceted organization to address. There, it's like it, it, this allows for the like all the all the the gaps. It's like. May, I, Maybe comics on the corner. If you tried to invest it with more infrastructure, it would just like it. It would probably wouldn't be as as effective. Or you know, it also sets a precedent that it needs to be sustained. And and maybe this is you're going to do this for a while, and then realize you know what I'm going to change tactics because I see some other opportunity. It allows you to be much more uh, flexible. So um, that's a that's an incredible backstory. But I, I, I want to um, uh, kind of bridge into a different question, and that is to say. So uh, you you had an initial experience of IOB and you saw how it enabled you to uh, do comics on the corner and affect your neighborhood uh, or an adjacent neighborhood very quickly uh, and make an impact. Now, that kind of grew into you being a Cleveland, the the Cleveland action strategist. But could you talk a little bit about um, maybe a little bit more about how how you grew into that role? But then also, from my understanding, you now are in a position. Uh, to essentially help the other action strategists all across the country be their best. That probably means you're pretty awesome at being the Cleveland action strategist that there's like, Don's got to help the rest of the country. Could you ta- that talk is a little actually bit?
1: Definitely, definitely true.
0: Yeah. And, and Aaron and I did not, I just like, I just know that innately, but uh, I, yeah. So I'm right, Aaron. Because that's how it went down. Okay, absolutely. Don, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your uh, initial interest to then becoming the Cleveland Action Strategist, and now really being America's Action Strategist coach?
2: <laughs> I crawled so they could fly. Um, so <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's it's really funny when I met with my predecessor in the Action Strategist role, um, and we're friends. We're you know contemporaries. Um, Like I was like, I finally know what I want to do. Because it was like one of those things like we've had like multiple conversations and that's another thing. People come to us all the time and aren't sure what they want to do. And so what we have to do is ensure them that we're still going to be here. It's okay, life happens. Maybe your, your trajectory changes or something like that. But when you're ready, we're here and we have all of these resources for you. So you can sort of wrap your brain around because everybody, I think, has a different starting point, right? Like, a, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm leaping in. I'm jumping into the deep end, right? And I'm doing this. Um, so I met with her, and I'm telling her about, like, you know, my idea. And she says, that is wonderful. And did you know that um, I'm leaving? I said, I said what? Why, why do you? I just figured out my jumping in point. Why are you leaving me? And she said, you should apply. <laughs> So I applied oh. for the position uh-huh. while I and I was interviewing while I was crowdfunding. So it was one of those really interesting moments because the person that I was interviewing with and going through that process, she was also my coach at the time. So it would mm-hmm. be like I would have like this interview and I'm like, is the interview over? Cause I really have like important questions I need to ask you about my crowdfunding campaign. And so she, <laughs> she would say, okay, yeah, sure. What do you what do you need to know? Um, so it was oh, like wow. this wonderful um, relationship building, because like, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And is this okay? And like, do I have the flexibility to do this? Or I need to change my deadline. And she was just like, Yeah, that's Yeah, you're good. Come on, let's go. Um, And so I was hired. And I was like, Okay, I really have some fresh, fresh experiences uh, with this. And so uh, prior to that, and even now, I serve on like a community grants grant making committee and um, have mm-hmm. some volunteer um, and network building, community building um, mm-hmm. experience. So I was able to use all of that in my role. I think um, the role of an action strategist really is sort of like three buckets of activity is how I sort of mm-hmm. uh, think about it. So there's the like the recruiting, right? um, where we're telling, we're singing the gospels of IOB. We're here, come join us, submit an idea, tell us what you want to do. Right. And so then we get them in. Like once we wrote you in, you're sitting down in front of us and then we're giving you that coaching. We're answering those questions. We're crying with you over ice cream. That literally happened with me and an, and an IOB leader. Um, sure. you know, we're, you know, we're, We're having these discussions, and we're uh, pouring into your dreams, and we're coaching you through um, uncertainty, right? And then after that, um, our our goal in our place-based work is to have people on the ground who are experts in what's happening on the ground. So I was able to use my grant making experience, my board experience, my just my own experience doing an IOB project to be able Mm -hmm. to connect people to resources. So that third bucket is that connecting, that weaving. Um, So we don't just do this in a in a a silo where we're just saying here, raise money. And like now you're out there on your own. No, here are resources. Mm -hmm. Here's a, you know. Are you, are you hydrating? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you stretching? Are you, you know, are you doing the things that you need to do? Right? And so, no? Well, here, let me connect you to the Zumba class that's happening in your neighborhood. Let me connect you to do you know, um, you know, how to file permits with the city of Cleveland. Um, do you know how to, who to call in the safety department? Um, here are these, here are these things. We even created a a resource guide around that in our different cities. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a little outdated now. I wouldn't, um, but I think like the departments are still the same. There's still useful information in there. And so our goal, our work is to be able to support people who come through our doors, who are trying to get good done. And a lot of times those are the people who need it the most. Those are the people who need the most encouragement. And right. usually the encouragement comes with knowledgeable folks who know, who know what's happening, know where, you know, the ins and outs of city hall, um, sure. you know, know, know when the street closures are coming and like that might affect your music festival, right. <laughs> or like, mm-hmm. you know, who, who have you talked to? Um, and so I coach our team, on thinking about those things, like, hey, you know, are you running into um, difficulties having a conversation um, with City Hall? And here's what worked for me, or um, what other resources have you looked at? Or, you know, what what are your hopes and dreams for your own city? I think at the end of the day, it's not like our um, strategy and our uh, engagement plans—they're coming from our strategists that are on the get- ground because they know what's happening in their communities. Yeah. I don't live in Detroit, but my strategist does and he knows what's happening. He knows, you know, who's, you know, who's giving them a line of bs and who's really about, you know, getting yeah. the work done. And yeah. so I trust him, you know, explicitly and implicitly to um to be able to go out there and advocate for the people that are coming through his doors that want to um they want to use our platform. We always talk about we move at the speed of trust. Um so it is our that. job to be, that. yeah, it's our job to be trustworthy. It's our job to um to back our words up with our actions. And so that is the main thing that I try to drive home with the team is that like, yeah, you know, we're we're I'm here for you and you're there for them. So let let me know what it is that you need. Um and I'm about you know making that happen and drawing those connections
0: right w- One thing I'll say is that um the handholding that i o b does uh is so important, and it's not just the the toolkit which is which is very useful there There's some practices, best practices and fundraising that emerge that you need to coach people through, but some of it is just that human level of saying you can do this because at the outset of any cause and, and I've uh, across the th- 36 or so episodes I've done, there's usually some version of like, there's that moment of like self doubt where they think, who am I to change the world? And that, 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 that inner voice of doubt says, well, like, you really think you're going to affect this, this issue? I mean, you know, you're, you're up against, you know, it's David versus Goliath, uh, uh almost every time, right. In a way, uh, even if the Goliath is an internal Goliath of safe, of self doubt. So the handholding, and saying the, you can do it part is, uh, is incredibly Im- Im- important. Um, you said something, Don, that I, that I want to also segue back into uh, the pandemic and that's we, we move at the speed of trust. Um, Aaron, this was probably more than a year ago. It was maybe even a year and a half ago. We, we were still really in the thick of things with, with the pandemic. Uh, and you, you iob was hosting a, a a series of calls with donors and, and i'm a supporter of, of, of iobi um and so i was on this call and it was just like you were very much in the throes of reeling from but also feeling really empowered by feeling this extra gear of utility uh to people in the pandemic and I, I, we move at the speed of trust uh it, it is is really I would love to know if that phrase within IOB predated the pandemic or whether it flowed out of the pandemic. And the reason I ask is this, I remember at the time and you correct me if if I'm not remembering this right, Aaron is like, you essentially were saying that one of the lessons learned of the pandemic was if you want to be close to neighborhood level work, you have to somewhat, uh, I think you described it as radical trust uh, and how like, the the typical nonprofit thing is like, oh, verifiable metrics of success. And only then do we like make the grant payment. You have to, it's, and then there's nothing wrong with being uh, accountable, but, but in the throes of the pandemic with as crazy as it was, and people are, were you want to talk about emerging needs, just, could you talk a little bit about a, the explosion of need and how you all were relied upon to really kind of like rise up to a, to a new level of challenge in terms of resourcing people. But could you, could you unpack a little bit of the the lessons learned as it relates to that, that phrase moving at the speed of trust?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks Marvin. I think, um, the pandemic was a really interesting moment for IOB. We have been responsive to community needs for a long time. That's why we exist. We're a tool. Um, And I think that there was just a staggering number of people who were in need, and a staggering number of people who were coming forward to help. And I think the pandemic kind of confirmed for IOB, like you know, and for the people who were who were coming to IOB, like you know, we are the ones that we're we've been waiting for, right? Um, Right. That like it's it's up to us. Nobody's going to come help us. Um, And I think we had a great opportunity and it was a, it was a real pleasure to work with people who saw their own liberation and safety tied up with their neighbors and felt so compelled to actually do something. Um, And I think there's, there was a real variety of people who stepped up to take, to take part and to and to give and to help. There was people who were really seasoned community leaders. And then there was people who had never done anything like this in their entire lives. Um, and that creates a fair amount of chaos. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's exciting. It is That's exciting. It's beautiful to
0: see that there Yeah.
1: And I think like one of the one of the takeaways that I've I've had from IOB for a long time is that not everybody comes with their IOB campaign because they have some like beautiful new creative idea about how to change the world, a lot of it comes from tragedy, you know, and some like really painful ache, um, that they're trying to heal in public. Um, and I think that's super beautiful. And that, I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic. And I think for IOB, we made a commitment really on early on that we were going to continue to be there to serve community for what they needed most. And that took a lot of really, really weird forms. There was a lot of different types of aid that it was really difficult for people to access. So um, our strategists, you know, the team that Don leads, um, and another team that uh called the Success Team that coaches people across the US. Um they had a lot of really weird jobs. We we operate as a fiscal sponsor for unincorporated groups. And so I know that one of our strategists was working with a group um, in Queens, New York that was per- doing mutual aid work, providing food and PPE to people. And they received an emergency government grant um, that was like the intention of the government grant was to help the group do more work, like better with more money and more funds and resources and in fact it was it was a burden it was a paperwork burden um and so our strategists like helped fill out all the paperwork um you know to make sure that they got those funds and you know the emergency funds took like 6 months longer than a crowdfunding campaign and so like the the systems that right. are in place to like do emergency response oftentimes are still pretty weak and so we knew that IOB's position was a place where people could get funds more quickly. And so we knew that we needed to make sure that people were able to access them. We um, we decided to pivot and make it easier for people to get multiple disbursements multiple times a week to multiple recipients. Cause there was like, uh, you know, large mutual aid groups were working with like huge numbers of people who were doing purchasing on behalf of the groups. So we needed to make sure that we could put money in the hands of people doing the work. Um, and there is other bizarre things that groups, you know, groups were raising a ton of money for, for mutual aid. And, you know, they had all these questions like, should we start a bank account? How do we do that? And our strategists were right there for them. Like, wow, yeah. here's how, here's how to navigate this decision with your group. Um, you know, and I think a lot of it, I, I don't know, this might be overly cutesy to say, but I think a lot of community work is really tedious bureaucracy and paperwork. And if IOB can just like do the crummy paperwork for you so that you can get out there and like deliver the food, deliver the comic books, put on a wrestling show, like, then like let us be like the people who do the paperwork for you and take care of all the financial management, like, and like be out there in community doing what you do best. I think like our staff flexed a lot during the pandemic to try to like do go above and beyond and do extra and it was cool to learn um and now we have a bunch of new programs that we formalized as a result of that the biggest one being that we offer fiscal sponsorship for any form of revenue that folks bring in whether it's just from a grant, or if it's a combination of grants and crowdfunding, or you know other sources of revenue as well, because it was clear to us that fiscal sponsorship is a really important need for all of the grassroots and emerging groups, mm-hmm. but also for groups that are are like are trying to be and act as if we live in the future world that we all want to live in they want liberated structures outside of 501c3s and right. they, they want to live that, that way now and not wait for the future that they're engendering. And so IOB can be useful to them as a fiscal sponsor now.
0: Was the fiscal sponsor uh, role uh, kind of there to a degree and came into its maturity or did you just not have that gear and it was created during the pandemic?
1: Weirdly we've been doing fiscal sponsorship from the very beginning but I think we just decided to expand it so that people uh-huh. could um could use us as a fiscal sponsor even if it's just for like one grant instead of for a variety of different funds.
0: Yeah. The the thing that occurs to me is that um again this is just another way that you can kind of enable those 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 gap groups that are that are that are between the kind of more staid institutional sturdy longstanding efforts. In in my very last episode, I interviewed uh, Smitlana Muzichenko, who is Ukrainian. She lives in Brazil, and and she started this nonprofit called UA Brokers Without Borders. And uh, well, not to tell you the whole story, but suffice it to say that the 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 what's what you get in relief. And they're only like six months in, of course. It's in response to a war, uh, the, the invasion of Russia, and she's she's where essentially ua brokers without borders stands in to do the crummy paperwork for the grassroots groups of citizens that are like literally working in in with around with it amongst bombs dropping and stuff and like delivering food and and medicine to uh to occupied uh, areas of ukraine and that's essentially what she's able to do and her group is able to do is until those like those those grassroots groups that just sprung up out of a, a need because there's a war, they don't have a track record sufficient to get the more staid large org support. And understandably, the large orgs have mechanisms in place to make sure that their money is being used wisely. UA brokers with that border is, essentially steps in and says, "Okay, like until you have that track record to connect directly, we're going to resource you. Uh, it's It's just so interesting how... That's that's really in a lot of ways, not only do you kind of like you know provide the tools, provide the resources to raise the funds, now IOB is really in a more robust way, also acting to help those grassroots groups uh, draw down the more you know state organization funds to kind of resource them in a different way. am I reading that right?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, comparison. You're reminding me actually of something an IOB leader in Cleveland who is running a mutual aid project there said just that um, in Cleveland, you have this ecosystem of, of social sector work where you have big foundations with big money and big nonprofits and you have small projects with small donors and there's not really any bridge between them and that IOB can serve as that bridge. And, you know, I, I aspire for IOB to play that role because I do think it's important um for the the big groups and the and the big funders to be able to see how critical and the interstitial muscles of yes. of, of all of this work is.
0: Yeah. And I think it builds in oh, some ahead, flexibility
2: girl. too. I think it, I think it really does build in flexibility. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, there were people who were already crowdfunding and then like you know, for their projects, and it was important to them, you know, before a global pandemic shows up, and so they're sitting there like, oh, my God, is what I'm doing still important because now we have people, you know, who are dying of COVID or, you know, their, their lives are turned upside down, and is this important anymore, right, and so, you know, one of the things that I always remember is coaching someone and saying, oh, this is still important, um, I was just in, I was just in the, uh, art is still important. And now my kids are at home with me and I can't find any art supplies because they've all been bought and you have access to art supplies. So let's just, you know, tweak it a little bit and turn these into art care packages for families who don't have access to art. You're still doing the work of exposing people to art. And so it gets people to think a little bit more flexibly, um, about the importance of their work. Um, and when, Again, I think like the bigger organizations tend to have um, the ability and the privilege of flexibility mm-hmm. or, you know, do, doing something different um, and responding. And to Aaron's point, like there's these smaller groups and it's like, we, you know, we're chugging along trying to get like this one thing done. And it's like, no, 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 don't stop. Don't stop. Right. And so IOB to me acts as that bridge. Um, because we're like, yeah, like we see the value in it.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: We see the value, like all of a sudden, because there's a, a global pandemic doesn't mean that like, um, people are going to, you know, in that, in that particular case, people aren't going to stop, um, still yeah. needing to be exposed to art.
0: Sure. I Just definitely do saw it a different way. Yeah. I saw arts orgs here in Memphis, Uh, become more flexible and they had to do different things. They had to shelve certain plans, emphasize different ones, create brand new stuff. And now we're in the, they're in the process of kind of like bridging back into some of their stuff that they planned pre-pandemic, but it's that flexibility, isn't it? And, And it's like, I feel like grassroots groups have a different type of flexibility in that they can be responsive to, and they're more proximate to the kind of emerging needs. Whereas, you know, a state nonprofit, they might have an innovative idea, but they might might also then go like, "Well, how does this fit into the rubric of our staffing model, uh, etc." So, like, I think both are are important. Uh, and so, if I could press you, Aaron, a bit on this this whole the uh, helping to grow the interstitial muscles of doing good, uh, wh- what what do you think that l- uh, looks like? And like, h- how is how do you see IOB? Uh, living into that role as as a strengthening those those ecosystems of doing good.
1: Thank you. Um, I honestly, uh, one of the things that's just been kind of churning around inside me for a while is that uh, I think the way that we talk about how change happens is kind of hurting us. There's these I think there's these kind of like harmful myths of how change really happens that there's like a, a single hero who is super charismatic and shows up one day and kind of waves a magic wand and they convince everybody that there's a different way. um, And then the whole world changes and then he rides his horse off into the sunset. And I, I, I think it's easy. It's easy for us to tell stories about one individual, right? Like Americans love individualist stories. um we love that kind of story. Um, We don't have a very strong storytelling muscle around groups of friends and how they change and grow like other cultures do. And I think my worry is that if I don't see myself as like the perfect kind of hero, then I'm writing myself out of the script of being able to contribute to the change that I want to see in the world. And the truth is, is like, that's total BS. Mm -hmm. Everything, like the real change happens because everybody does a small thing. There's so much unappreciated, unseen actions that everybody has to be a part of to make something happen. Um, We all have an important role to play in this. And sometimes that's making a small donation. Maybe it's a little volunteer hour. Maybe Mm -hmm. like I'm even a government employee and I just like take the time to prioritize making sure that permit goes through in a timely manner, um, or make it a little bit easier for the person on the other side of the desk to like do what they want to see for their community. Um, there's a lot of these things that go into making real change happen, and we're stronger when we practice um, when we practice working together um it's a muscle i really really love adrian marie brown's um emergent principle around fractals where what we practice at a hyper local level is the same kind of muscles that we need at a national scale wow. and for me i think like this kind of stuff is this is the democracy building work that we all have to practice um when things feel so big and so difficult to address at a national scale we all can do something at the local level but we have to remember to like write ourselves back into the story and i mean marvin i remember talking to a bunch of people in memphis in midtown who worked with uh, betsy robinson on painting the underpass on central avenue yeah and people like it it was like you know pretty modest participation it was like you know i donated to it and then like i got to be a part of painting it and it was like Wow, I'm a different person now. I just like changed this part of my neighborhood, and like, uh, people told me that they like thought of themselves as different types of community members. They thought of themselves as leaders. Their kids saw themselves as leaders. Like, Mm -hmm. their this ability to like actually change something in public—that's huge. And I feel like Ayubi's role is just to make it evident, right? Like, you can do this. It's actually like not that hard like look somebody just like you tried something and you know what also like maybe you fail so what it's okay like you're allowed to fail um right because you you gave it a shot um and so i think like if anything i hope that Ayubi's role is just like telling people like you have a role in this big picture of change. You're part of this like large constellation of all of us working together and your role is actually critical. It's not small and you don't have to be like the big mythological hero of the day. You just have to do this like one thing and it's important.
0: It's really empowering, uh, to realize you have it within yourself. And I I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, I started writing "Champions of the Lost Causes," the book, and and hosted the podcast. and And of all the guests I've had across all interviews, I don't think I've run into yet the 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 mythical hero on a horse with the ride off into the sunset. Like it doesn't exist. Uh, the more I ruminate on the concept of why people champion causes, what sustains them, and what helps them succeed, uh, it's this. This, this this group materializes out of the ether. Sometimes it's a crisis of opportunity. Oh, look at this old building. Oh gosh, it could be this. Or in our case, it was literally a crisis like this. This building we we love is going to come down and that would be a crisis given what it, all it means to the community and what all things happened there in the past. Um, but I, I feel like you, you're absolutely right in that a, a, a team of champions kind of coalesces out of the ether. And it's interesting how... Uh, the universe summons this interesting group of people that all have these different gifts. Like I, I've kind of I look back at the founding of the Coliseum Coalition and I thought to myself, you know, it's it's kind of like a, to use a Batman analogy. It's, it's the comic book thing, Don. Uh, to use a, a bat a Batman analogy, it's like the bat signal hits the cloud, right? Uh, but it's not just Batman. It's like there are lots of Batmen and Bat women, and we all care about quote unquote air quote Gotham, right? And we see that and it's like the, the, the distress signal hits the cloud. And it's like, we just, uh, we can't help but respond. Right. So that, that team of champions that coalesced around saving the Coliseum, uh, what just kind of like, I mean, some of them were people I knew from Midtown others I didn't, but just all of a sudden, Hey, we're working on this, I guess. Like, it's like before you know it, you're like shipmates. And before you even realize it, you're three miles out to sea with no land in sight. And you're staring in the face of your collaborators going like, what did we just, what did we just start? And and I just, when I, when I, when I think about what IOB empowers, it's these groups of champions. Uh, You essentially are the group that you're, you're, you're the, the cause you champion is empowering other champions to champion their causes is essentially what it is. And I, I couldn't agree more with the whole, group work thing like um and, and also people who champion causes are in for the long slow slog and it's it's not some heroic thing we've been conditioned by watching movies you know that like it, it has a such a distinct you know there's a response and like they roll the credits two hours later but life doesn't work like that i mean i'm i'm seven plus years into my champion's journey uh to reopen uh the mid-south coliseum not not all Causes are that long. Some are short, or short, shorter term. Uh, Don, I, I saw you, you nodding and smiling, and uh, as as Aaron was was describing that that last section of like how IOB might grow into this kind of interstitial muscle building uh, within the ecosystem of uh, of doing good. Uh, how does that map over to what you've seen uh, in Cleveland? Uh, but also as you've as you've kind of now uh, uh, adopted a, a more national role in encouraging other. Uh, action strategist, how how have you seen uh, th- those concepts play out in, in, in those systems?
2: Oh, yeah. So one of the, um, it's a learning process first. So um, I think like, it's important to say uh, that this is a learning process. And so I'm always, um, you know, like in Cincinnati. Cincinnati is our newest city, right? Um, and we launched that, that office. We opened that office after the pandemic started. We launched that office in April of 2020. Um, so oh, wow. That is, yeah, yeah. In so the that's, thick of things. <laughs> in the thick of things. So it has been a process to learn how to pivot, even within our own ranks, um, how to build community completely, online. Um, one of the things that uh works really, really, really well for our model is that you know we were literally on the ground, but we could go and meet with people. And then for you know a year plus, right, um, you know, we couldn't. Um, so how do you build community in in a pandemic? <laughs> so there's been a lot of a lot of learning. Um and, you know, to Aaron's point, you, you have to be patient with yourself. You have to be patient with um, uh, systems that exist uh, outside of uh, a response to a thing like a, a pandemic, uh, a global health crisis. Um, and, like, it's okay to fail. It's okay to get something wrong. So, you know, and then what do you learn from that? I literally just had this conversation. (laughs) I was at my kid's school this morning and there was like a new secretary, um, in there and she was just like, I hope I can, you know, keep this as a permanent job. And I was like, it's okay. I just want to encourage you today. Um, that it's okay to make mistakes. You are human. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get something wrong. And what do you learn from that? And how do you incorporate that learning? And that's this, and she was like, thank you so much for that encouragement. I needed that. because I was feeling really nervous. And that's what I tell my team. And then that's what I encourage my team to tell the people that they're working with. I'm not in those conversations with them, you know, one-on-one or even with partners. Cause sometimes, um, we can't discount, not even sometimes all the time. We cannot discount the importance of building these coalitions and these partnerships on the ground because IOB can't do its work on its own. Um, you know, one of the reasons that i'm that I was successful and that my the person who has preceded me in this role, um, that he's been so successful is because we have really strong partnerships on the ground with people who mm. already had a built audience. Um, one of the pivots I had to make when when I was enrolled was like, hey, I can't keep um, pushing like these IOB exclusive workshops. Who else is doing this work already? Who else can I partner with? Who already has an audience? How can I like build trust with this partner so I can build trust with p- the people that they serve. And so we can have those conversations. So it's about being flexible. It's about, you know, being responsive to people's needs and then understanding that like things change. Uh, <laughs> it's a process. Um, it's a process. I mean, you yeah. know, the thing that Aaron mentioned about, you know, during the, uh, during the pandemic and expanding our fiscal sponsorship um, offerings. Like that was something that was sort of born out of need and like listening mm-hmm. to people and understanding that like perhaps we actually do have the the capability of being able to serve, um, serve our people slightly differently. And mm-hmm. then that, that forms, that helps inform and form new relationships say with a foundation. Right, mm-hmm. Who has money, and they're like, "We really want to get money to people on the ground, but we don't know how because we can only fund five oh one c threes
0: exactly hey, right. guess
2: what we have. Guess what we can do? Send us your grantees, yeah. and that happened like a group reached out to us and said, "Hey, we have a group of grantees that we want to fund, and this happened here in Ohio. uh we want to fund them, um but they're not. 501c3s can you take this group of people so it it opens the conversation yeah it opens the conversation back and forth right um Mm -hmm. and so like we get to be sort of like the bridge um and so so, and and then like i get to tell my team hey when you're having these conversations with partners here's our toolbox here's our menu of options Uh and if you don't like um, chicken wontons, we can make them vegan, right? We have this <laughs> option for you. Yeah. So, you know, giving people options and I call them easy on ramps to participation is always um, mm-hmm. the thing that I'm thinking about, like right? how, and, and it's about equity. It really is about equity. It's about justice. It's about restorative justice. Um, when we know that there is something inequitable or something unjust happening and we have the opportunity to do something about it um we should we should at least try it and that's what we're coaching people to do right so you know we should we should live it too
0: it sounds like it's uh, that's i I love that. It's like, I, I find myself as a fan of IOB just growing as a, like a, as into a bigger fan because I kind of see what your work is with greater granularity. So um, this is, this is really incredible. It's almost like the, uh, the interstitial muscle growth is also the relational muscles uh, between the staid partners and the grassroots. Uh, one of the things that I've just realized in my own work is that oftentimes it's that, um, you know, the three-legged stool of, of uh, municipal slash elected uh, philanthropic and grassroots, uh, and if you have all three legs of that stool, it's a sturdy stool to sit on. To the degree that the grassroots is sometimes in opposition to the municipal, like like our own, you know, kind of like efforts with the uh, the Coliseum Coalition started that way. You know, like we were in, in an adversarial relationship with uh, with our city government. Um, so I, I just think it's interesting that that you are in like what you just described. Don was really more uh, that kind of interstitial muscle between foundations and grassroots. Um, the, uh, okay. So that's as, as a, as a, as an emerging thrust, um, where, where all do you see that, that going or, or like, how can, are are there rooms that you all are in? that the grassroots groups are not. And, and it's like, if you speak both the language of foundation and the language of grassroots, is, is there a translation process and like a, you, you have built community with, with, uh, foundations and you have built a uh, community with the grassroots. Is, is it a matter of like, you, you can make the right introductions or that you can kind of translate and and, and help speak those different languages to each other such that people can come together. Is that, is is that the type of work? That you...
2: Absolutely, cultural oh. translations is what I call it. The cultural translators, oh, okay. right? Um, all the time, all the time. You you have to go back and forth. And I saw Aaron was about to chime in. I just wanted to put out there that like that's a big thing that I'm always um, sort of like. I I have regular check ins with my team. Like, hey, what's happening on the ground? What would, you know, what makes this week or these next two weeks successful for you? Who are you talking to? Because I can't keep up with all of that. Um, and it's like, you know, there are times where I'm having conversations with them like, hey, bring these particular things. Um, and also, I think that that's a, actually a really good question or segue to talk about like match funds. Because sometimes, um, I think our match funds are awesome, because there's a lot of times where, like, you know, people need like, this boost, or you know, um, the, the a foundation or even a government entity um, may have a, a particular interest in making sure that resources make it to the people that are doing this work on the ground, and maybe mm-hmm. they don't have a 501 C3. Yeah. And so um, our match funds are like this great bridge that we provide. Um, for people to be able to see, literally see the investment, mm-hmm. um, that's coming from some of those entities where they're not in the same rooms or they're not in the same spaces together.
1: Dawn's absolutely right on the, on the match programs for sure. Um, that's an easy way for us to help get philanthropic funds, um, to grassroots groups quickly. I think the other thing, too, though, that IUB can play an interesting role in is um, is helping amplify work so that it gets follow-on funding. Um, we've supported a lot of different types of infrastructure projects with seed funding that have been awarded significant government funding afterwards. And, and a really cool example of this was um, a 39-mile multi-use trail in Georgia called Firefly Trail. They raised $62,000 on IOB in 2017, and they did it with a lot of online fanfare, like Facebook posts, everything, Instagram. And they were like, really like their their donors were very charged up about it. And the, I mean, the like public outpouring of support was just really to do like the first half mile as a demonstration project. But because they had gotten all of this like energy around their project, they were quickly awarded $16 million in follow on funding from a specific sales tax that was designated for transportation, special purposes, which completely finished funding the trail. Um, And it doesn't always have to be, um, it doesn't always have to be government funding. It can also just be like government listening. I know that there is a project in Memphis ages ago just to put up um, crosswalk flags so that people from the neighborhood could get to the park to get to Overton Park more safely. Yep. And the flags were up for a few months, maybe a year. And then finally the city put in flashing lights. Right, And was is there also a speed hump there too? I know it's a, a much more formal crosswalk now.
2: It
0: it, it absolutely is. And it, what you're reminding me of, Aaron, is this idea of revitalizing. In a way, the, the Coliseum Coalition had a revitalizing event, which made people be like, oh, gosh, this place, Boy, wouldn't it be great if it were open? But in a way, what you just described is also revitalizing because you're giving the people the realization, oh, these crosswalks aren't safe, you know, because someone, there's been some uh, grassroots interaction to make a makeshift solution. And then that became the the bridge that that then they it was identified and there became a need to solve it at the more uh, root cause. No, that's 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 an excellent and point.
1: Did I do I um remember this correctly? But I think that Memphis just got the unfortunate first place of um number one in the pedestrian death index, right? Yes, Pedestrian death is skyrocketing since the pandemic, but I know that what's surprising to me about that is we've supported so many different intersection repairs like Chris Mm -hmm. Crosswalk and the one at the elementary school. There's been a lot.
0: More needs to be done. Uh, And uh, Nick Euler is the the current uh, bicycle pedestrian uh, uh, coordinator for the city of Memphis. He's doing a great job. Uh, I think it has a lot, he, he, he faces a a, a yet another uphill challenge. I think, you know, dial it back 10, 12 years was really the Genesis point of Memphis's bike lane movement. Uh, Then we built it. We we moved from worst in the country to most improved in bicycling magazine. I think it was, but of course now the pace of change has slowed down. And and, and quite frankly, you know uh, we, we have an administration that, you know, it's enough of a priority to keep the, the position staffed and so that he can continue working. Uh, but but it, there's a difference between having a, a minimal uh, you know, effort to get something, keep making progress. Um, there's actually a, a nonprofit out in, in Colorado that I'm working with called CityThread uh, that's all about helping um, uh, uh, communities fast forward their mobility networks, because they realize that if you don't make progress fast enough, you squander the public goodwill and so it's all about you got to do something fast enough for the elected officials to have a, a win to point to so they can win re-election you know so it's they're in a way working on the same thing we described which is like the the, the three-legged stool of of municipal elected philanthropic and grassroots it's like how do you find the way so that everybody can win? And I think right now Memphis is just weighed down by our administration with a certain degree of compassion for uh, for Mayor Strickland. Like we've also had some incredibly violent crimes just in the last week. Awful, horrific, violent oh, crimes.
1: Heard. It's so terrible. It's, I'm so sorry.
0: It's it, yeah. No. So, I mean, it, 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 and, and Memphis is not a, a wealthy city. Memphis is one of the poorest major U.S. cities in the United States. So it's like. I say that with a group, with a, a bit of compassion, you know, like he, in a way he can be forg- forgiven that we're not making quite fast enough progress on, on bike lanes and bike safety, but that doesn't mean that the work that Nick Euler is doing is any less important. Um, uh, and, in, and indeed I, I, I'm a PR pro by trade and, and I was doing some publicity for another org and I was able to kind of roll in bike safety with it, ended up being, uh, on, uh, Got a national uh, a TV placement and 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 got Nick Euler on the story to kind of talk about Memphis's, you know, um, uh, bicycle and pedestrian safety issues. That's just a, a thing I was able to do. But I mean, I think more needs to be more needs to be done. And 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 again, it's like the patience, forbearance, rinse, repeat. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Champions sign up for the long, slow slog, and they have to fail, as Don was saying. They have to adjust tactics. Uh, and it is a it is like you know. The reform of society is a multifaceted, you know, long, slow slog of a process, uh, and we all get impatient with the pace of change. And it, it is it is absolutely demoralizing and and daunting to realize um, that Memphis is a dangerous city for bicyclists, bicyclists, and 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 pedestrians. Um, but Nick Euler's on the job, and there's the, the grassroots groups here in Memphis that care about those issues are still active. It's just, um, yeah, it's disappointing, but like, we can't, we can't let that get us down. I don't guess. Or yeah, not stay down yeah. for long.
2: And you have a pedestrian and bicycling coordinator in the administration. Yeah. I don't think Cleveland has that. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me, let me just say, like, I don't think that that's a priority within even our new administration to yeah. have someone who's specifically focused on that. Right. right. So, there's a win that you have to keep telling that story. Um, so you know, you know, sometimes it, it it is. It is the low, it's the long slog, but like, you know, celebrate your wins too. Like sure. that's the other part is you know, teaching people how to celebrate their wins. <laughs> oh, trust me, I was pedaling down
0: I was pedaling down Peabody Avenue, which finally got its bike lanes and got repaved. A certain amount of this is it has to cooperate with the paving schedule to save money. Uh, et cetera. But like riding down Peabody felt pretty awesome and it felt a whole lot uh, more safe. So yeah, celebrate the wins and uh, keep doing the work because um, it's somewhat, it's somewhat endless. But um, so gosh, I, I've, I've probably held you all over. And honestly, I'm such a fan of IOB and and I feel so strongly because I've benefited personally. Uh, my own cause has benefited uh, greatly because of IOB. So I could keep you all here all day and turn it into like a a three-part series, but but I know you all have to get back to doing the work of IOB. So I'll close with this. Um, we've already talked a, a little bit about uh, what's on the horizon for IOB, growing these interstitial muscles, but uh, you know, and, and helping you know help uh, grassroots organizations in different ways. But um, I've also noticed that 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 you all are staffing up, uh, and that's that's a that's a very good thing. It means you're you're adding staff strength to to be able to do more. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what's on the horizon uh, for IOB and say the the next uh, five five years that that you hope to do more of, maybe something we haven't described uh,
1: heretofore? Sure. I mean, I think that the biggest thing is that, you know, the last two years have been really clarifying and showing what IOB is really useful for. And um, we had already had a plan in place to do some, new improvements in our technology before the pandemic and now we have a ton of clarity around what we need and we've got like we understand what the community wants we understand what our staff needs to be more effective and more efficient um and so we're investing a lot in our technology um and so next year is the year where we're going to be releasing the new version of iob.org which we're calling iob.org next um We have a digital inclusion policy that guides all of our decisions about how we build our technology and do our marketing work. Um, And all of that is in service of making sure that we can serve uh, communities better. Um, I think we've got a proven track record of centering equity and inclusion um, in our work. And I know that that's valuable to our partners. Um, And there's real urgency around that. Um, nationwide. And so I think we've got an opportunity to step up and be able to serve and our new product will make it easier for us to do that well and efficiently. Um, So that's, I think that's the big thing ahead for us. Um, Um, But also before before we finish, I know that you've got an audience that's bigger than just Memphis, but we do have some specific Memphis programs that I think it'd be like sad if we didn't have a chance to
0: you, plug. You read my mind and I was sitting here thinking I've been emailing back and forth with Miriam uh, about uh, pr- programs and ways that IOB is is looking to help Memphis even more. So absolutely. Tell us more about that.
2: Don. Just curious, do you want me to talk about them? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, we we currently have a, a couple of match programs, and I and I sort of foreshadowed uh, what our match programs do um, or how they assist. Um, and so, how match program our match programs work is they're like dollar for dollar matches. So I give ten dollars, it shows up as a twenty dollar donation. Um, individual donations are capped of course cuz we want people to actually crowdfund. Um and so um yeah, so we have two match funds we have. Uh one that uh covers I think the entirety of Memphis mm-hmm. um for COVID recovery projects. And that is very broadly defined. I want your listeners to understand COVID recovery is broadly defined. We did not know at the beginning of the pandemic how this was going to affect us two years later. So broadly defined uh, COVID recovery. And then we have another one that's in um, specifically for the Memphis Medical District. Right. Okay. You got it right. (laughs) Um, And so for the uh, Memphis Medical District, um, that one is... uh, I'm, I'm reading notes right now. Oh, you're sure? Uh, <laughs> Binghamton South City Medical District Projects mm-hmm. um, within the zip codes of 38112, 38126, or 38103. Uh, and the projects are eligible um, for the match. And I believe it's up to $2,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can always learn more about these match projects if you go to iob.org, I-O-B-Y dot org forward slash memphis to learn more.
0: Awesome. I should note that um we the Coliseum Coalition benefited from match funds, at least in our first one, if I recall. And it's not so much that the match funds themselves make the campaign successful, the human effort is like what makes it successful, but it's an accelerant, right? Like I've done enough um, public radio p- p- pledgeathons for WKNO to know that when you talk matching money, uh, you know the phones light up, and it just it it, it just gives you. I think Aaron described it as, as a boost. It, it's it's a necessary uh, or it's a useful boost. You don't need it, but man, it can. <laughs> can really uh, I
2: give tell people moves. all the time the match is not the magic wand you your story your project is the magic wand Right Like that's Amen. the thing that's gonna because regardless, right, it, nobody's gonna give if they don't know about your story. they you know if they're not if they're you know not buying into it if they're if they' don't see themselves in benefiting from it, like period, like you have to go out and ask people for money. I remember when I first met Erin, she asked the question she asked me the question, um why do you give? I'll never forget. And it was like, oh, because I believe in something. It's this. And she said, "No, oh, it's because you asked for it. <laughs> because somebody asked you for it. They asked you for the money. You know, it, it happens at church. They pass the plate. They're asking you for money to, you know, go into the building fund. So, like, you, you got to still get out there and ask. The, the match dollars don't just magically appear. You are the magic wand. And so like it is a boost. It you know, it can make me feel better that like you know my ten dollars is now turned into twenty dollars automatically, right? Um but you know, at the end of the day, like it's great to have and it's wonderful to have, and we are so thankful um to the funders for this. Uh, but at the end of the day, like Memphians are are the reason yeah. that this magic is happening.
0: It's the cause is the bridge over which the people travel. You know they they then have skin in the game. I know thinking back to our roundhouse revival original like success with with the, with the fueled by Iobi. Uh, It was also fueled by all those people who were able to be given an opportunity to tag in and kind of, quote unquote, put their hand on the pile Uh, or like with the with the bike path analogy you were mentioning earlier, Aaron. It's like you had a groundswell of concern. Uh, that's hard to deny and then see people not only is that galvanizing for the community you're building, but it's also observable to other funders and you are know, something's really going on down there, whatever. Uh, and then more, your your more state op- uh, organizations can sometimes get on board. Um, no, but that's, that's incredible. Um, thank you both so much for, for being with me today here on champions of the lost causes, anything that I might not know, have known to ask, Uh, or uh, that you want to, uh, uh, mention here in closing?
1: Oh, I don't know about that. I just feel like this is just such a fun conversation because, you know, you, you're, you you like are IOB. So it's just, it's just, (laughs) it's awesome. Um, you're really, really wonderful. I think you're kind. This is just such a fun conversation and it's so nice, um, to think about Memphis and, and, uh, to, to swim in all those memories. The, the mm-hmm. only thing that I'll say is, you know, um, if people want to find us at IOBY.org or on social media or on, in our backyards on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, um, IOB is kind of a funny word. So you always want to spell it for people on, on audio.
0: Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. No, plenty to learn. Uh, I appreciate that. And we got to make some fresh memories now, Aaron and Don, y- y'all both y'all got to come down to Memphis now we got to have y'all have y'all here. And of course, I want to get back up to where y'all are as well. But thank you both so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This is awesome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Champions of the Lost Causes is a production of the Back to the Light Podcast Network. I'm your host, Marvin Stockwell, produced by Ryan Azada, with production assistance by J.D. Rieger. Logo and design by Collins Dillard. Music by Ryan Azada. If you like the show, please follow, rate, and review us on your favorite platform. Keep up with the latest at championsofthelostcauses.org. Part of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.